Well, hello everyone and welcome to another cigar stream. We are going to be continuing with Britain's blunder after a little uh, break last week. Um, and the chapter is called Chivalry, Good Faith and Prejudice. It is chapter two in the second part. Um, only 10 pages for today, so could be a short one just before we get going. Remind you, do buy my courses at the Academic Agency. The the sale is on, ladies and gentlemen. The Christmas sale. Uh, the promo code is VAXGLIDE2. And if you want to watch the uh, advert, um, well, those of you who saw this uh, stream live, you will have seen it as a kind of trailer to this. Uh, or you can go on my channel and you can watch the video there. But I don't want to waste too much time uh, with shitting. I want to get on. So let's make a start. This is Peter H. Nickel, Britain's Blunder, page 62, chapter two of part two, Chivalry, Good Faith, Prejudice. In regard to what might be called Persian... Start that again, sorry. Um, in regard to what might be called personal chivalry, in spite of the flood of propaganda on each side, all charging the opponent with ruthlessness and savagery, there was nothing much to choose between. It would be quite unfair to single out special and rare occasions of cruelty or baseness on either side in order to besmirch the whole nation. And if Britain resents such judgment on herself, she must scorn to apply it to Germany. The fact is that in all wars some beastly episodes occur, for there are bound to be some ruthless rogues in a great army, and there are also moments of fierce provocation. There are also misunderstandings. A notable instance was that storm in a teacup, the manacling of prisoners. Curiously enough, it was once again Britain who started this practice, by tying up prisoners caught in the dark during a furtive and risky stab at the German forces in the Channel Islands. It aroused the indignation and censure of the German government, who retaliated by handcuffing certain prisoners of their own in Germany. But when the International Red Cross Agency took the matter up, and it was shown that Britain's new action was simply owing to very new and unprecedented circumstances of the attack, there was soon no more heard of business. Um, the manacling of prisoners. I, I'm not quite sure what he's talking about there. Uh, the records of the U-boat were, on the whole, just what everyone expected, so long as this submarine warfare is recognised as lawful. Alongside cases were merchantmen, where merchantmen were sunk, and the survivors were left to find what port or rescue they could, owing generally, of course, to the fact that the U-boat concerned had to hide for its life within minutes of its attack. There were plenty of cases where the torpedoed crews and passages were treated not only with consideration, but with the greatest kindness by the U-boat commander and his men. As the war went on, and the United States added to the sea battle, there were ever fewer chances of showing such kindness, more especially when air attack over the ocean spread increasing danger to every submarine. But at that time, and indeed during the whole war, it was impossible to induce British people to judge with either common sense or with common fairness, so that while they sprang upon any or with common fairness, so they sprang upon uh, any single case of alleged cruelty or lawlessness in the enemy and branded the whole German nation with it. They simply ignored episodes on their own side, which were indeed singularly lacking in chivalry or even decency. One finds it hard to understand, for example, how the Prime Minister could publicly confess in Parliament that orders had been given presumably with his own uh, consent, 
that if an armed attempt to rescue Mussolini took place, the guards would shoot him out of hand. Since when has it become the British custom to shoot a helpless prisoner? Since when did decency, let alone chivalry, permit such a deed? It appears, in this instance, that the Italian guards knew more about chivalry than the Prime Minister of England. The treatment of Rudolf Hess affords another illustration of conduct, utterly at variance with hitherto accepted ideas of honour, even in time of war. Hess, in his solo flight to Scotland, showed, whatever else, extraordinary daring, skill and initiative in an attempt to induce Britain to end the war. At great personal risk and no doubt trusting to British standards of fair play, even to an enemy, he made his desperate attempt and effort to enlighten Britain as to the real issues at stake on the continent of Europe as he conceived them. According to Mr Eden's statement long afterwards, Hesse's plea was that Britain should end the fight with Germany and join her in an effort to protect the age-old civilization of Europe from the threatening flood of a godless Soviet system bent on the destruction not only of Germany, but of Britain and of every power antipathetic to her communism and dictatorship. But at that time, the public were left utterly ignorant of all that had passed between Hess and the government. He was simply thrown into jail and treated as a common prisoner of war. The effrontery of maintaining such an attitude to a highly placed statesman who came as an ambassador of peace in however an unorthodox way was very brazen and indeed contemptible. But it showed how far the passions of war had swamped the British sense of honourable dealings and also indicted pretty clearly uh, sorry, uh, also indicated pretty clearly how bent the British government now was upon the destruction of her opponent rather than upon the redress of any actual wrongs allegedly committed by that opponent. We will deal with Hess again. Suffice it to say here that not only Britain but America has learned since how accurate were Hesse's fears and judgments of Russia's ultimate aims and policies, and obviously Hitler's also. One more incident of war throws a sinister light on the conception of honour in fighting on Britain's part. An officer was rewarded posthumously with the Victoria Cross for a daring plot, almost successful, to creep into the headquarters residence of Field Marshal Rommel in North Africa and assassinate him. Of the bravery in taking the risk, no one would doubt. Of the code of conduct involved, one could doubt still less. It was a base code, baser in those who conceived it than in those who carried it out. Enough has been recorded to show that if Britain is not to be judged by occasional lapses, from decency and chivalry, neither is Germany by similar episodes if they are found, and yet every effort was made by the public broadcasts, cinema pictures and public platforms to portray Germany as a barbarous antagonist who had jettisoned every respect for the decencies of lawful fighting, while England herself remained a spotless crusader. We must come now to those events which proved decisive in the ultimate issue of this vast conflict, namely the entrance into the fray of other powers of Italy on the side of Germany and of the United States of America on the side of Britain. As to Mussolini's action in declaring war on France and Britain and invading France just when she was grappling hopelessly with Hitler's oncoming mechanical war machine, Mr. Churchill exhausted his masterly command of strong and vivid English to describe the ignominy and cannishness of it. But while intense chagrin may drive a gifted orator 
terms of superb opprobrium, only a determined sense of justice can pass judgments which will last because they are just. What was the position just before Mussolini entered the war? He had striven in vain to prevent its outbreak. He had tried hard to stop it after it began and would have succeeded had it not been for Britain's refusal to consider negotiations. He might very reasonably have declared war as soon as Britain did so against Germany, for Italy was bound to Germany by mutual pledges of support. They formed the so-called Axis. They were allies just as surely in some ways more than Britain and France were allies. A blow to one meant, in honour, a blow to the other. Britain never for a moment doubted that it was bounden duty, it was the bounden duty of France to enter the war with her. But in France, uh, but in fact, France very nearly did decline. <laughs> surprise, surprise. A Britain would have deemed France a traitor if she had declined. And yet Britain seemed to think that this tie of honour, so inviolate between her and her friends, did not apply at all to Hitler and his friends. It required Mussolini himself to remind Churchill that besides the old vague historic friendship which had prevailed between Italy and Britain, there existed then a very definite pledge of friendship between Italy and Germany, and that he, Mussolini, was much more bound to honour this definite bond than to suit the convenience of Britain by breaking it. The truth is that Mussolini could hardly have replied otherwise to Churchill's rather ridiculous appeal. The appeal was ridiculous because it showed such an ingenious blindness to anything but Churchill's own convenience and advantage. If France was bound in honour to enter the war also with Britain, then Italy was equally bound to enter it along with Germany. If Britain had done Italy no actual wrong, neither had Germany done Britain any actual wrong. The case on each side was identical, but Churchill could only see his own case, and one is apt to suspect that much of his gross sorry, vituperation of Mussolini later arose from personal chagrin but having his childish one-sided idea of honour between friends exposed and rejected by the Italian dictator. Mussolini had offered help to Hitler whenever he saw that peace negotiations were doomed. Hitler advised against it, not wishing to extend the war and still believing that it might be limited to Poland. Therefore, to maintain that Mussolini only came in when he saw his chance to stab a foe in the back, will not do. He would have been in from the start, as France was with Britain, had it not been Hitler's own request not to do so. By the time France was invaded and her armies routed and in disorder, circumstances had very much changed. Both Germany and Italy had come to realise that Britain was impervious to all appeal. She had openly flouted all idea of negotiation. She had announced her resolve to fight until Germany was overcome. It was impossible for the Axis forces to hide from themselves the, immen the immense, indeed terrible, risk to themselves which this resolve, if fulfilled, would entail. They were well enough acquainted with the copious resources of Britain, quite apart from France, and with the dogged perseverance of the British character. There could be only one policy now for the Axis powers. They must summon up their whole strength and devote every ounce of it to prevent that doom which their enemies sought to inflict on them. Could it be wondered at that, sorry, could it be wondered at that Mussolini now realised that inaction was no longer possible or honourable 
as to the precise hour at which he would join his friend, he must naturally be the hour most proprietist for success. Britons following Churchill's lead had repeated ad nauseum the charge of basely stabbing France in the back when she was already down. But it was not pertinent to ask why should Mussolini, as an admitted friend and ally of Germany, have attacked France only when she was strong? Did Britain or any other power always refrain from attacking an enemy when she was weak and uh, always wait for her to be strong before launching the attack? This was no play acting. It was not even now a local war. It was rapidly becoming a terrific fate-deciding conflict. Mussolini must have known that every advantage he held on his side was needed and every disadvantage on the enemy's side must be seized if the ultimate issue was not to be permanent disaster to his own land and regime. It was charged that Il Duce also that he came, sorry, it was charged against the Duce that he came in at the precise time in order to get a good share of the spoils. If that was so, was it either unreasonable or disgraceful? All human motives are mixed. Italy had long before this made certain specific claims against France. She would have had more than... She would have been more than human if she had deliberately renounced her own chance of gaining them by, by refusing to participate in a quarrel which was directed against her one chief friend. She had therefore two main motives, and both were as honourable among nations of competing interests and forces as are to be found generally in the whole course of history. The first claim was to fight on the side of a friend to preserve the safety and the realm of both. And the second was to assure that she obtained her due share of victory if victory were to accrue. We bribed Italy in the First World War, but did not pay the bribe afterwards. Interesting. Once again, let the screaming calumniator of Mussolini answer. When and where does history provide an instance of any country launching an attack against her enemy, not when she found her enemy weakest, but deliberately when she found her strongest? Certain it is that in England we heard voices for years beseeching the government to attack Germany before it got too strong. In other words, to attack her when she was as weak as possible. It is instructive to compare the entrance of Italy into the war with the action of Russia in invading Poland in 1939 and in declaring war against Japan in 1945. Very instructive indeed, for it illustrates so remarkably the power which self-interest can wield in creating self-righteousness. In 1939, Russia being no ally of ours back then and having concluded a non-aggression pact with Germany, suddenly invaded and occupied half of Poland, the eastern half, while Germany was completing her conquest of the western half. On every hand in Britain we heard strong language about the baseness of Russia in stabbing Poland in the back while she was fighting bravely in the front. Even our government's frantic wooing of the Soviet government could not prevent the almost universal condemnation of Russia's unprovoked invasion and annexation. Russia's own excuse was that the Polish government had fled and its forces disintegrated there remained no Polish state. And it was up to her, Russia, to step in and ensure the protection of the Eastern Poles. One can give what credit one can to this excuse in view of the very bloody protection accorded when it came to the army officers and the landowners. But one thing is certain, Poland was not at that time a potential enemy of Russia. On the contrary, the two countries had non-aggression pacts between them. 
there was therefore no excuse for this attack, an invasion, an annexation of half of Poland, just when she was already facing defeat. But there was excuse for Italy attacking France, a potential enemy already at war, with a sworn friend. When Russia struck her blow against Japan in 1945, she did precisely what it is said that Italy did against France in 1940. She came in when Japan was weakening to defeat, in fact already defeated. She came in, although Japan had done her no wrong, and she came in in order to secure a share of the spoils. That is, however, this slight but distinct difference that it is in favour of Italy in the comparison. Italy had no friendly treaty with France before the attack, whereas Russia had had a very definite treaty of non-aggression with Japan. These little details, by the way, that Nichols is going over, much forgotten about, I would say, in uh, accounts of the war, in the, in the popular consciousness. Nobody really thinks about exactly when each of the Allied and the Axis powers were were and were not at war, you know, but uh, interesting details nonetheless. Uh, let's carry on. And now, as to Britain's judgment, it is easily and quickly told such acts of attack or aggression were unspeakably base if committed by any of her enemies, but quite justifiable, even praiseworthy, if committed by her friends. We heard no more condemnation of Russia for her aggression against Finland, Poland and the Baltic states when once she had become our ally and we had plenty of praise for her coming in at the close against Japan. There was no stab in the back talk then for she was not our ally. Uh, for was she not our ally? I was Russia not allied then so you know only our enemy apparently can be guilty of baseness in spite of all appearances the entry of the united states into the war was the most momentous act in the whole drama of the second world war for it made it a world war indeed this happened in december 1941 more than two years after the first outbreak in Europe, from the whole attitude adopted by America, led, persuaded and almost coerced by President Roosevelt, the eventual entry of America was inevitable. She wholeheartedly favoured Britain and began to amend her own laws in order to give Britain all the assistance she could. The Neutrality Act was amended and the Lease-Lend Act were quite, were evidently quite incompatible with neutrality. Roosevelt insisted on taking any measures necessary, short of war, as he called them, for the safety of the state. These measures were startlingly alien to any hitherto accepted standard. For example, he declared that the defence of Britain was necessary to the defence of America, where we've heard all this bullshit before. And also that, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's the exact same playbook that they use today. You know, if Israel falls, America falls. How many times have you heard it? For example, he declared that the defense of Britain was necessary for the defense of America. And also that American ships must have safe access to any port of any land they choose to sail to and to carry what cargoes they choose, they chose. As to the first claim, it is easy to see that, if granted, in principle, any war is bound to expand. It is a claim entirely unknown in the usual and well-understood principles of international relationships. It is really a claim to help another country to fight an enemy, and yet escape all interference from that enemy. Roosevelt must have known well enough that his claim was tantamount to a declaration of war against Germany. He probably had decided in favour of a war, 
long before it actually began, but found the American people difficult to coerce into it. As to the shipping question, Germany was quite well within her rights in preventing supplies reaching Britain if she could. Here again, America's claim to immunity from attack was not only a contradiction of all prevailing rules of blockade and war, but it was arrogant and ridiculous. Roosevelt's whole contention was either childish or remarkably disingenuous. Uh, we are left to guess. It was, we guess, designed to force Germany to declare war herself. Again, it must be said, he probably had decided on war with Germany and merely used his arguments and put them into action as a sort of decent garb in which to clothe his real intention and his actual entry into the fray. Yeah. When once the order was given, his ships to attack on sight any German warship, the end had come. That was in December 1941. It would have been a better thing for Roosevelt's credit if he had scorned these delays and pretenses, had openly declared his intention of joining England in his struggle, and had done so at once. It may be certainly that only by such gradual stages could he prevail on his country to join it, but one certainly cannot accept or excuse this impediment um, as a means of charging Germany with either the crime of making war against America. Roosevelt did not make this charge and soon began to declare the Nazis' ultimate aim uh, had been, from the beginning, to invade and dominate America. One might, of course, as well charge Spain with meaning to dominate England when she objected to English ships, bringing supplies to the government side into the Civil War. But no statesman has yet been found who can resist the temptation to misjudge and slander his enemy. Far braver and truer had Roosevelt been if he had openly announced to the world that he hated the Nazi system, philosophy, and practice so fiercely and considered it such a menace to mankind that he was resolved to join with England in defeating it and eradicating it forever. But this must be the summing up of the actual record of what happened. Namely, that Germany declared war on the United States only when the laughter left her no choice. The charge that Hitler aimed at dominating America and then the whole earth must be dismissed as obviously absurd in itself and without the slightest foundation in fact. Months before America came into the war, her president had clearly shown his hand and choice by meeting with Churchill in the Atlantic, and that where these two leaders drew up what was later called the Atlantic Charter. Within a few years from then, the Charter was so bedragged and discredited that it was hardly worth describing now. It sounded very fine in print, so do many platitudes and proverbs. It was really merely a mixture of platitude and hypocrisy. Its platitudes proved barren, and its hypocrisy was soon unmasked. There was to be, if the Allies won the war, freedom for all nations to choose their own form of government, the Lyle of which, to Germany, was the present Cassus Belli. <laughs> no charges. I mean, we've seen how that's worked out, the freedom to choose your own form of government. I mean, at the moment, in this order that was established by Churchill and Roosevelt by the victory of this war, we've seen that basically no nation is allowed to choose its own form of government. And in Europe at the moment, they're barely allowed to elect their own, you know, that democracy is not really allowed to uh, take its course either. So it's, it's you know, it, Australia had a vote. They had a, literally a national referendum uh, on something called The Voice the other day. And last I read, they're just the government is going full hog with it anyway, even though it was rejected by the people. You know, in Germany right now, they're talking about banning the AFD. 
um, you know, the, the, we, we are seeing we are seeing democracy openly flouted, is what I'm saying, all across Europe by this very system. So we've seen how this turns out. Anyway, let's carry on. No changes of territory without the freely expressed consent of the inhabitants. Restoration of the sovereign rights of these states which had been forcibly deprived of them. Equal freedom to all nations of access to the raw materials of industry throughout the world. And he, uh, after each of these, he's put in question marks and exclamation marks, which is quite funny when you see it in print. Um, and an effort instigated to bring about universal disarmament with, however, enforced disarmament immediately for the aggressor or potentially aggressor nations. Potentially in bold there. These were the main terms of the charter. Mostly excellent, but merely platitudes, for they were old and trite as ideas for the future of the nations. The hypocrisy of the whole proceeding became evident as time went on, and the protagonists in this grand charter got to work. The third part of this treatise will best show how sincere they were in their notable pro proclamation, judged by the amazing ways in which they proceeded to put it into practice. Discerning people had already, however, detected the actual policy of these two leaders under the beautiful garb of language. For the eighth and last clause of the charter made it evident that all promise of disarmament amounted to was this, that Germany and Italy were to be kept disarmed and helpless as long as the victors wished, while they, the victors, were to remain armed as long as they chose. Any child in international politics can understand that a nation which is kept unarmed by other nations which are armed is thereby liable to any sort of treatment, however harsh, however unjust, for it is no has no weapon of defence against whatever is meted out to it. The Treaty of Versailles had at least promised disarmament of the Allies after Germany had disarmed, but this charter merely aspired after such general disarmament and definitely promised it for the enemy. This intention soon led discerning people to see that in spite of all the fine plans enunciated, the real ones, the real object of the Allied leaders was to smash their enemy in the good old way and keep them down and helpless as long as it suited the victors. This suspicion, and I, I believe, by the way, that this continues right to this day that the that the europe as a whole it remains smashed by its enemies namely the allied powers namely america uh with with britain in tow britain subsequently a much junior partner um you know owing to the as i've detailed uh, on this show in previous weeks when we were looking at uh, imperial, imperial obituary, um, you know, that was the other Churchill special, you know, giving away the entire empire. But uh, anyway, let's carry on. Um, th this suspicion was amply vindicated when one after the other, the other promises in the charter were so paired away that soon hardly a ghost of them remained. Some were flagrantly broken, as we shall see. Uh, the famous charter had only one significance worth pondering. It meant that President Roosevelt was determined to join England in her war against Germany. And this he soon did. The second biggest factor in the issue of the war was the incoming of Russia in June 1940. The Allied world held up hands of righteous horror when Hitler's army suddenly marched across the whole length of the border of Russia, who screamed out that this was the most perfidious act in all of history. Had Russia and Germany not just signed a non-aggression pact less than two years before, and lo, without a single excuse, this bloodthirsty gutter snipe, as Churchill egg elegantly called him in a public speech, had broken the pact in one hour, in the most dastardly way. It will always be doubtful what precisely led Hitler to commit what. 
from a conventional point of view was certainly a breach of faith, and in any case was an act of the greatest folly from the point of view of his own interests. It cannot enough be emphasised that human motives are mixed, and the bigger the stage and the drama, the more diverse are apt to be the motives. Hitler's invasion was certainly not a mere act of aggression on a huge scale, although he might well have entertained pleasant prospects of acquiring certain rich tracts of the Ukraine, always anti-Bolshevik, as a consequence of his attack. Two other motives were surely paramount, however. Certain lesser ones lurked around. These were, first, the acquisition of wheat, oil, and other necessities for what promised to be a long war with Britain, and probably America, and which Stalin was withholding in spite of pact terms. Second, the final defeat of Soviet Russia's continual and deadly threat to swamp European civilization with her barbarous atheistical communism as operated by the quote-unquote dictatorship of the proletariat, the proletariat being conveniently personified in one man, Joseph Stalin. Further, if only from Stalin's many breaches of faith and treaties already, and his stab in the back to Poland, Hitler knew well that Stalin would and intended to stab him in the back as soon as it suited Stalin. Hitler's need of supplies, however urgent, could never justify the breach of faith and invasion, and no historian would attempt to justify it. But it must be remembered that Hitler was getting uh, already into a desperate position, not desperate yet in actual military position, far from it, from the future point of view. The British government had absolutely turned down every plea for a reasonable settlement and so an ending of hostilities. Churchill had declared that he would soon give Hitler neither peace, rest, halting place, nor parley. This remorseless threat, coupled with the open support and inevitable intervention of the United States, must have aroused in Hitler something of that desperate and frantic rage which a man feels when his good intentions are mocked and rejected and he is hounded down by all respectable society and assured in advance that nothing but his ruin and death will satisfy the human hounds. That man will be apt to trample on all conventional standards of conduct, more particularly because it is conventional minds and hearts that have condemned and attacked him whilst allowing themselves unbridled license. And while in that mood, Hitler had the very thing to hand which would enable him to defy and thwart these enemies, a huge war machine. Was he, with that weapon ready, to neglect his own and his nation's defence and future, all for the sake of the old conventional rule of nations, and for a pact which he and Stalin knew was merely expediency and false? Russia had the goods he needed, food and oil. He must have them at all costs. And no doubt to Hitler's mind, the crime of taking them forcibly from Russia was very much diminished by the fact that Soviet Russia for years back had been both secretly and openly trying to seduce all European nations to her own system, undermining the fabric of ancient Christian systems, bribing and corrupting labour leaders, deceiving and misleading honest workers in every German city and industry. Need he be at all scrupulous about giving this Asiatic colossus and tyrant a good blow beneath the belt? British critics have frequently laughed at the German bogey as used by Hitler to defend his attack on the Soviet Republic. In this, they are most palpably mistaken. Long before the war, this ideological cleavage had contest formed the one insoluble problem and menace of Central Europe. It was as bitter in, nat in nature as a religious war. The Spanish Civil War proved this up to the hilt, 
We in Britain might, by reason of our long-established democratic freedom and placid conservatism, fail to take the Russian threat seriously and even declare that Russia had every right to her own system, whatever it was, though we denied a far more civilised system to Germany. But in Central Europe, such an attitude, such an attitude was impossible. The old and the new were too contiguous. The cast of Russian politics was missionary. The emissaries of Moscow were cunning, fanatical, ruthless, and generally secret. The masses of German and other continental states, too, had no strong sense of democratic unity and strength to withstand the subtle intruders and persuasive propagandists of communism. The menace of Moscow was all the greater since it was no case then of any actual outbreak of hostilities, not even of any political antagonism, so far as the usual cause of international relationship, trade, travel and so on, was concerned. It was rather the menace of blood poisoning, for blood poisoning is not too strong a term to describe what the air of centuries of Christian civilization in Europe felt about this infiltration into his veins of this virus of godless communism begotten as it was in blood, nurtured in tyranny and flourishing amidst the direct poverty of a vast half-Asiatic continent. Hitler hated communism and much of his dislike of Jews arose from the fact that so many leading Russian and half-German communists were and had been Jewish. And Hitler's fear and hate only summed up what the vast majority of ordinary people on the continent felt. Russian communism was a barbarous and horrible business, and if it ever swamped Europe, the Dark Ages would veritably return. As Churchill so directly stated when quote, gallant, gallant little Finland was attacked by, quote, these dark and brutish hordes from the east. Churchillian rhetoric pre-1941 should have left us in no doubt about this, nor his advice that, quote, this obscene disease must be rooted out, exactly what Hitler set out to do in 1941. It seems quite possible that Hitler's real aim from the first was to do just as Churchill said and free the world from Bolshevism, giving himself Lebensraum eastwards. The Spanish Civil War proved at least one thing, that given a chance, given an accident, fascists and communists would fly at each other's throats. Is it then to be wondered at that Hitler in 1941, finding an urgent need for certain products of Russia, of a Russia whose threat to European ways of life and to the life and security of nearly all European states had so long haunted the minds of himself and millions of other folk, should have small scruple in using his forces to secure them in one blow he would accomplish two ends. He would get the indispensable supplies and he would crush for a long time, perhaps forever, the menace of communism. But while Soviet Russia had not actually committed any act of aggression or attack directly against Germany to excuse Hitler's attack and could thus plead foul treachery on Hitler's part, it is too often forgotten or deliberately concealed that Stalin had done more than enough to sow the profoundest fear in Hitler's mind that he, Stalin, would launch an attack as soon as he found himself in a favourable position. Apart from the sedulcious, I am not aware of this word, apart from the sedulous, Okay, time to look up vocab again, friends. Sedulous. What on earth is this word? Okay, so sedulous, that's S-E-D, 
U-L-O-U-S, sedulous, means of a person or action showing dedication and diligence. Okay, another, another Peter H. Nichols special there, sedulous. Apart from this sedulous courtship of the Allies for Russian active help, consider what Stalin had done since signing the non-aggression pact with Hitler in 1939. He had gratuitously attacked and invaded Finland and taken all he wanted there. He had invaded the three Baltic states and had, by the most overbearing and scurvy methods, annexed all three. He had invaded Romania and annexed Besser Bessarabia. What other motive could he have had but to threaten Germany? Of course, it may be said that he did these things to defend himself against the Nazi menace. One thing is certain, Stalin was quite as much an aggressor as Hitler. He was actually much worse than Hitler. Hitler had either justice to claim of enemies to ward off, but Stalin could not possibly make any just claims against France or the Baltic states or Romania, and he had no war against his own territory or his ends. That there was an equal mutual suspicion between Russia and Germany, even after the 1939 pact, may be taken as certain, but Stalin had certainly taken by far the more drastic steps to show his suspicion and had given Hitler the firmest ground for believing that whatever Russia was adequately prepared, she would launch a direct attack against Germany, a stab in the back, just as on Poland in 1939. Her very first act of aggression in seizing nearly one half of Poland, while Hitler was still engaged in fighting the Poles, was suspiciously like perfid perfidy to the pact which she had just concluded. Stalin declared that his invasion was simply to defend the Slav part of Poland, when now it had no government left. An unbiased onlooker would hardly justify his outrage, even if his excuse was genuine. But it is impossible to accept his excuse as genuine, and all the more so when he proceeded to attack Finland and the other lands bordering on Germany. It comes to this, then, that while Stalin had not technically attacked the Reich, he had committed such acts of aggression against neighbouring states, and acquired such obvious points of attack against Germany, that Hitler might well be excused for deciding that Russia had broken the 1939 pact in spirit, if not in letter. Uh, and again, I'm reminded uh, of the reverse situation with Ukraine, and uh, Putin. Putin's reason for attacking Ukraine was that NATO was it was encroaching on his border states. Same in Georgia, and same in several other situations, Belarus, for example. And what Nicola is saying is that Hitler, in attacking Russia, was basically responding in the same way that Putin was responding to NATO aggression, um, you know, in Ukraine, which is fair enough, I think. Uh, although we could, there could be a whole other book called Germany's Blunder, couldn't there? Um, you know, opening up that second front has to be seen as a historical error, whichever way you look at it. Anyway, let's carry on. Uh, that Hitler might be excused for deciding that Russia had broken the 1939 pact in spirit if not in letter, and he dared um, uh, not wait longer and so permit Russia to acquire a really dangerous position on his eastern flank while he was already engaged in a deadly war with Britain. Incidentally, it should be noted that Stalin's attacks, especially on Finland and Poland, were greeted by the British public ge generally with hisses. Even the pro-Soviet communists hung their heads in confusion. But after Russia came into the war, the team was changed and his sins of aggression were either wiped off the slate or they were explained as merely necessary steps to guards against the Nazi threat. So once more we see how quote-unquote aggression is a sin if committed by one's enemy or rival, but as an excusable necessity, even a worthy proceeding if committed by a friend or ally. 
I mean, that entire chapter could really be called Does Peter, Peter H. Nichol Understand the Friend-Enemy Distinction and Carl Schmidt 101? <laughs> um, I mean, he obviously does, but he is what he's doing throughout is pointing out Allied and British hypocrisy all the way through. Okay, so this was a short chapter. Um, interesting few details about how various powers, um, especially Italy and uh, the USA and Russia, entered into the war. Uh, the next chapter promises to deal with Japan. So we will cross that bridge while it comes. Uh, any super chats that have been sent, I will deal with on unpopular opinions as per usual uh, with these. And um, let me know if you're enjoying this. I'll remind people once again, do buy my courses. Um, the uh, promo code at the moment, 25% off all courses, VAXGLIDE2. Vax with an X, Glide2. Vax Glide 2, 25% off. And I'll see you again soon. Now get out. What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Well, that's easily fixed.